Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. When the pandemic started in mid-March, governments and infectious disease experts advised the public to stay home and stay physically distant from anyone not in your household, except when completely necessary. Those restrictions have made it challenging for single folks to find a way to connect with new friends and potential sexual partners. You know, sometimes texting just isn't enough. Sex, kissing, holding hands, foreplay, the pleasures of touch have become a complex and risky activity in the age of COVID-19. But now life is opening up, and that means some people may be looking to date and include an intimate partner in their social bubble. A lot of you are wondering how you can do that while taking precautions to stay safe. So today on The Dose, we're going to answer the question, is it safe to have sex or be intimate with someone new during COVID-19? To canoodle that, I'm joined by Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, Deputy Commissioner at New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, and one of the experts behind a new set of surprisingly candid guidelines on safe, intimate relations during the pandemic. Dr. Daskalakis, welcome to The Dose. Thank you for having me, Brian. Call me Dimitri. Okay, Dimitri. We're on a familiar basis, which is perfect for this conversation. Uh, (laughs) Some health departments are saying sexual contact with new partners or persons who are not in the same household is not recommended at this time. So basically abstaining from physical contact with others if you're single or live alone. Now, that might have been accepted wisdom during the first few weeks of the pandemic. How about now? I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of ways to give people guidance around sexual activity during the pandemic. I think it's important to give all options uh, from really what is, in effect, harm elimination to harm reduction. So I think that as the pandemic has evolved, it's become critical to acknowledge that people will not uh, stay celibate during a pandemic that doesn't really have a clear end in sight. So I think that as the pandemic evolves, so, so does guidance. And so I think early on, the right strategy was stay at home. I think the right strategy right now is if you can stay at home and really focus on household uh, contacts you already have as your main partner. But reality is that that people are, you know, not doing that anymore. And so I think it's important to then transition more into a harm reduction stance, which tells people how to be as safe as they can be if they decide to have sexual partners that are new. And so, again, like as the pandemic changes, we all have to pivot and move quickly to give new guidance. You know, it's not just in COVID. It's in so many other diseases like HIV and other sexually transmitted infections where we know that a abstinence based model tends to be very uh, unsuccessful in the long term. The more realistic part is to give people harm reduction strategies to make sure that they're able to uh, keep themselves as safe as possible if they choose to uh, leave their homes and have new sexual partners. So what do we know so far about the most common ways that intimacy might cause the coronavirus to spread from person to person? 
So COVID-19 is not a, a typical sexually transmitted infection. In fact, it literally flips sexually transmitted infection work up, upside down because we usually think about STIs as something that you worry about from the waist down. And this is a scenario where we're worried from, the, from really the neck up because the, the, the most likely and most common form of transmission of COVID-19 is through respiratory droplets, uh, not through genital secretions, vaginal, semen, or anal. The COVID has been found, uh, coronavirus has been found in semen and also in stool. The, the, the likelihood that that's an efficient mechanism of transmission is super, super low. And so it's sort of a, a different sort of tact to saying that like, you know, really it's not a typical STI, a typical sexually transmitted infection, but ultimately we need to sort of have strategies to prevent transmission, even though it is more of a droplet transmitted uh, disease. Do we know why semen and feces reportedly contain COVID-19, but there's no evidence of the same uh, in vaginal secretions? Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's, we, we don't have any evidence in vaginal secretions for sure. We know that it's, it's been identified in, in a study in semen and a couple of studies in stool. I can't tell you that that's an efficient mechanism for transmission because most other coronaviruses, that's not really how they transmit. And so even though COVID-19 is part of a pandemic, it's still a coronavirus. So, uh, you know, what we do know is that efficient transmission is by, by uh, prolonged contact uh, and droplets. As we said in our, in our guidance, um, it can be, you know, prolonged contact, like having a conversation, coughing, sneezing, but also panting. So we, we really think that there's like a lot of sort of uh, possibilities where uh, in, in a sexual scenario, there could potentially be an opportunity for transmission. Kissing will often be the next step in an intimate encounter. People may wonder, well, how bad can kissing someone really be? So tell us. You know, it's all theoretical, but I think that in terms of what we know about COVID, unlike other STIs, kissing is probably one of the highest risk uh, scenarios that you could have because that's, you know, uh, secretions that are, uh, you know, potentially saliva or other droplets that can be generated. So I think that uh, oddly enough, uh, kissing is probably uh, one of the least safe encounters that you could have which I think really throws people off because that's a pretty good start for intimacy. This just requires some uh, you know, creative thought of how to share intimate moments. Again, uh, like how can you integrate a mask into, sort of some, into closer face-to-face -face contact is a really good question. And I think one that folks are creative and can navigate. Well, so now that you've raised that issue, how do you incorporate masks uh, into, into that, that intimate moment when you might've wanted to kiss instead? New York, our our uh, folks are pretty inventive, and New Yorkers have asked questions like, "What happens if we have like a, a kiss through a mask?" Um, you know, I think the bottom line is I can't tell you what the risk is of that, except that it's probably lower than a kiss without a mask. So I think that if you're electing to do that, uh, maybe a little canoodling, as you've put it, uh, through a mask, maybe the closest that you can get to uh, to a real kiss. Now. I think ultimately, again, um, you brought up the issue of social bubbles. And I think ultimately the other question is a new sexual partner isn't new forever. And so there may be some strategies to sort of loosen that up as you bring someone into that social bubble. We're going to talk about getting, you know, bringing somebody into that social bubble as you as you become closer to somebody else and, and, and want to be more intimate with them in, in just a moment. Um, I want to ask you something. Is it better if we're, if we're going to be doing this? Is it better to be doing it outdoors or indoors, given what we know about about well, how uh, how COVID-19 uh, is tra more transmissible indoors than outdoors? 
Oh, that's a great question. So I think uh, the answer is that we know that indoor transmission is way more likely. Um, so I think that again, an outdoor setting with better ventilation is gonna be better than an indoor setting. And indoors tends to be uh, more uh, you know, prone to transmission than outdoors. It's, it's always worth thinking about like sort of what the interaction is like. So I think again, um, you know, face coverings tend to be a really good strategy, but I think that, uh, that outdoor space is also not a bad harm reduction approach. There are some people who may not be ready to lock lips. What are the dangers of hand holding? I would hold all the hands in the world that you'd like to hold. I would just, however, recommend, uh, especially in sort of a dating scenario, like really good hand hygiene. And like after you hold hands, that's a good time to squirt some alcohol-based hand sanitizer on your hands before you start touching your face. So I think that, you know, really, if you're going to be sort of a, if hand holding is a part of intimacy, again, like it's not zero risk, but the risk of contact uh, transmission of COVID has now been shown to be low. It's gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but we're back to it being not a very efficient mechanism of transmission. So with good hand hygiene, hold hands and prevent and, and avoid actually touching your face until you sanitize your hands again. And probably a good idea to carry some hand sanitizer in your pocket. Uh, I think that in general, that that's a new normal. Uh, if you can carry a small bottle of hand sanitizer, that's a really good plan. How about hugging? Yeah, I mean, I think again, hugging is another one of those like close face to potentially close face to face options. I think that like in a zero in a zero harm world, the answer is you would avoid it. But in the scenario that you can't, uh, better to hug wearing a face covering than to hug without a face covering. Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever, and me, Taylor McGilvery, and myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. Going back to what you said earlier, sounds like condoms are as important as ever. What about masks? You know, before COVID, wearing a mask during sex was kind of outside the mainstream. I know you've talked about it a bit, but some health <laughs> departments are recommending it. How effective is it to wear a mask during intimacy? Well, again, like there's interestingly enough, like our mask guidance that, that does recommend using masks um, in the setting of intimacy uh, actually emerged from conversations that we had uh, in New York City with uh, with sex workers, who specifically within the fetish community, who said that they were using masks sort of routinely as a part of their interactions. And that really triggered the conversation for us about whether masks or not should be, or masks should be something that are included in sexual activity, which is really where our line came from, the make it a little kinky in our guidance saying like, even though this is off the beaten path for some people, it's certainly not off the beaten path for everybody. And it's a really good lesson uh, from the fetish community, which, uh, which has been backed up by a pretty good letter from Harvard University that actually agree with the idea that a mastering intimacy may be a way of reducing transmission. Again, it's kind of like another barrier uh, in terms of barrier protection. So as you said, condoms are still really important for a lot of other sexually transmitted infections. HIV and potentially uh, for the very like low likelihood of transmission of COVID through seminal or anal uh, secretions. Uh, but think about the uh, about the mask as another sort of level of protection in safer sex. And so if you're going to have a new partner, you know, spice it up, use a mask, make it something intimate, make it exciting. You can eroticize what you're doing um, while still uh, reducing the risk for uh, COVID-19 transmission. 
what are you talking about a a Batman mask or are you talking about a medical mask? Listen, if it covers your nose and mouth, we're good. That's what the guidance is. Well, since uh, since the kink community uh, came up with one good tip, are there any others uh, that that you've learned from sex workers that are worth passing on to the general public? Something that we were asked on a couple of, of our webinars was, uh, what about using physical barriers that uh, that uh, made it difficult to have face-to-face contact, but still allowed for sexual contact contact in the barrier? And so we were like, wait a minute, well, that's a great idea, because that's really, the, tra- the transmission risk is really from that face-to-face contact. And so that is a lesson directly from our New Yorkers who asked us very specifically about that. And I think, you know, from the perspective of the theoretical mechanism of transmission, um, this is also a great strategy. The other question that we get a a lot is, um, what about face-to-face sex versus positions that don't require face-to-face interaction? Well, again, just like that turning your face during the hug, this is another good strategy. Again, not zero harm, but again, being creative, being inventive, eroticizing some of the things that maybe were not in your sexual repertoire before, um, it could really mean uh, a way to sort of have these sexual encounters and interactions in a way that will reduce COVID-19 if you choose to have them. How do you talk to your partner about things like this if if it's a new partner? Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I think that the answer is the way that you should talk to them about STIs and HIV as well. Uh, as a doctor who does a lot of HIV work, I, you know, I really feel like, uh, you know, part of conversations pre-intimacy is to uh, gauge people's risk level. I mean, I'll tell you, like, we have a very convenient environment now to be able to do that since most of courtship that's happening, I believe, is starting in virtual spaces, whether it be through like dating apps or it, or social media of other variety. I think it's a really good thing to say, you know, like, what's your story with COVID? Have you been tested? Like, have you been sick before? What do you have an antibody? Realizing again, we can talk about that. Those are not foolproof. Um, have you had a lot of other hookups? Really sort of going there and asking the same questions that you would about HIV or any other STI ends up being a part of the MO right now to make sure that you have like better sense of what your partners are thinking and doing. I'm really happy that we were one of the first uh, departments of health to sort of put out some guidance around this because, you know, I, I come from the HIV space in terms of my work and the idea of, quote, zero sorting or making decisions based on people's dis- like as HIV status is pretty common or was pretty common before the age of uh, antiretrovirals and pre-exposure prophylaxis that have sort of neutralized some of the need for that conversation. So I think that really you just need to know what the tests mean. So an antibody test that looks for prior exposure, well, those aren't so great. So they have, they're prone to false positives. They're not really, you know, great information to make decisions about your personal health on, but they're better than nothing. Uh, If someone has an antibody test that's positive, it's probably likely that they were exposed to COVID-19. An even better test is if they had a, uh, a diagnostic test, which is either a nose swab or a saliva, If virus was detected, that means they had it. That feels a lot better than the antibody test since uh, false positives are a lot less common. Um, And what we know is individuals who have been exposed to COVID likely have some amount of protection for some amount of time. Now, what does that mean? Well, I can't tell you how strong the protection is and I can't tell you um, how long that protection lasts. But if they had a positive diagnostic test like nose or saliva, 
Um, and um, it's been um, over 10 days since they started feeling sick or they had the test and they've had at least three days without fevers, they are not infectious anymore. So that partner potentially is someone who is unlikely to transmit uh, COVID-19 to you and potentially is at lower risk for reinfection, probably way lower risk, although we can't tell you how low. Do roving bubbles work? Can you tell me about roving bubbles and tell me if they work? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that this is like, welcome to the new reality of where we are. I think that uh, the idea of creating um, a social and frankly sexual network that is more enclosed allows you a couple of things. It allows you more control over who you're exposed to. The more people you're exposed to, the higher the risk of, uh, of COVID transmission. That's number one, but also it gives you the opportunity to sort of know who in your circle is potentially infected. So if you have like a tight group of, of sexual partners that you keep in contact with, if someone comes down with COVID-19 and they tell you, you know that you need to make some moves. For instance, you should probably get tested. You should probably expect a call uh, from, a, from a, uh, a, a contact tracer if you're in a, in a place that contact tracing happens. And then also my, you know, my, my favorite advice is if you're hooking up, um, it's probably uh, good not to go home and kiss grandma right away. So you wanna make sure that you are symptom free and that you don't have COVID before you encounter people who potentially either because of their age or uh, comorbidities or other uh, health concerns may be at higher risk. So really, again, as we evolve the pandemic and as we get to a new place, I think that months and months of isolation, not really realistic, uh, especially from the perspective of sexuality. And so better to have a plan with a tight group than no plan at all. Uh, you've already touched on this, but I, but I want to get back to it. M masturbation uh, or virtual or phone sex from the infection control point of view would certainly be safer, but, but people may be really craving human touch, especially now after months of physical distancing. Do you think it can replace sex with someone else? No, that's why we gave our guidance. I think that definitely there's a role for uh, sort of virtual spaces. And I think in our guidance, we were even pretty specific that this is both for pleasure and for some people for business. Um, so for, for help for sex workers who, uh, who uh, aren't uh, doing live dates now, I think that there's a lot of options, including paid fan sites that we shout out as well. Uh, to be able to sort of generate an income, but yeah, I think I think that masturbation um, virtually, you know, is it, it, it does the trick, um, but it doesn't do it in a durable way when people really crave some sort of physical interaction. We also go out on a little bit of a limb and say that if you have a, a person that you'd like to masturbate with, um, that's a great thing to do with a mask, and you could potentially even do it with some physical distancing. So I mean, I think you know, there's there's all sorts of strategies uh, depending on people's level of risk they're willing to accept or not accept um, that would let them have a level of intimacy that is greater than a Zoom or a FaceTime. You've been very candid. Is there anything else that you had on your mind that you wanted to uh, mention to us? Yeah, no, I think I think the most important thing is really to have honest conversations around sexuality. Now we add the dynamic of COVID and really ask yourself, like, what risk am I willing to take? And am I willing to take this risk for this person? So that I think is really, really important. So I think, you know, it's it's about negotiating risk and just identifying where you live. Like I often say to my folks 
who are uh, uh, in, my, in my practice that does HIV treatment and prevention, that there's some people who are bungee jumpers and some people are scared of heights. You figure out where you are because the level of risk that you're willing to accept also tends to influence how exciting or erotic a sexual encounter may be. Like if you're petrified of a live sexual encounter, it's not gonna be fun. But if you are interested in doing it, just make a plan. Um, you know, and I think the other thing I would also add is that we were trying to be pretty clear about the idea of you know uh, individuals who may have multiple sexual partners more than once, and so you know our guidance really is to try to keep those groups really small, uh, and you know to just uh, try try to even go with a sexual partner who is consistent or in your social bubble, so you can stick to each other while still being in a uh, a uh, a different dynamic. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis. I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, Deputy Commissioner at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Here's my take this week. At this time, it's wise to be a step ahead of the coronavirus. Before getting physically close, ask your would-be partner if they've had recent symptoms of COVID and if they've been tested. Remember that the virus is spread by droplets from the mouth and nose. Hold hands? Sure, but afterwards, use hand sanitizer before touching your own face. Want to kiss? Try it while wearing a mask. If you're still worried about the risk, there's always sexting and other virtual approaches. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about the coronavirus and anything else, let us know what they are and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC White Coat. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our show so more people find out about it. This episode of The Dose was produced by Arianne Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me, with support from Nicole Ireland and digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.